in January of this year in Memphis. I had the privilege of preaching at the first One Cry event for pastors in a declaration of calling this nation to a year of praying and seeking the Lord and believing God for a movement of God in this land like we have not seen. At the end of that time, I joined with about 150 pastors in that room that day to sign the One Cry Declaration. Before we get to the end of this series of messages on Sunday mornings, we will have an opportunity as a church to declare that with one voice and one heart, one mind and one spirit, our longing is for God to send revival and to sign that pledge, that covenant with God that we are serious about Him working and about Him moving in our land. The cry of the Welsh revival, 1904 to 1906, was bend the church, save the people, which became modified by Evan Roberts when he said, Lord, bend me. I'm asking God to bend us, break us if he must, but to bend us toward him because we are too upright in our pride as the people of God across this land, in our sense of self-sufficiency, in our sense of being able to handle all of our problems on our own or that some magic wand and pixie dust will appear in November and fix all of our problems. Our problems are not in Washington, D.C. Our problems are in every church that names the name of Jesus and is not desperately longing for Jesus to show up and do something. That's our problem. Because if we were the salt and light that we were supposed to be, we wouldn't have the problems in this land that we have. You can look in the mirror when you go home and you can declare to the person you see in the mirror, I am one of the reasons that God is sending judgment on this land. I've looked in that mirror and it's not a pretty sight. Not just because I'm getting older and my hair is gray. It's not a pretty sight because I realize that my lack of intensity and longing for revival and the quick influence of secondary things is one of the reasons that God is not able to send revival. And yet, revival is a sovereign work of God. It cannot be manipulated. It cannot be orchestrated. It can't be plotted out. But it can be that thing in which we put ourselves in a position for God to begin to work in our lives. If you study history, you study the history of revival, you see that it is always a sovereign work of God. And in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, our key verse for all of this, and then we're going to end up in the book of Isaiah for most of the message. But God said, my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. When God spoke these words to Solomon at the dedication of the temple, he gave a very clear, concise, one-verse outline 
for walking in the presence and the power of God. He gave a clear and concise outline for national prosperity and the blessings of God. And the reason that we are in the shape we are in now is because we have omitted 2 Chronicles 7.14 from our thinking and from our praying. But we cannot begin to think that we can check the box on these phrases in 2 Chronicles 7.14 and somehow like putting a puzzle together uh, we can get God to show up on our terms when we want Him to show up to do what we want Him to do or believe He should do. Uh, that would be in many ways evangelical humanism, that somehow we can manipulate God. God is not manipulated. He, he is not one to be persuaded, but He is one who looks at the heart of people who are serious toward Him. He looks for a remnant he looks for a core. He looks for a body. He looks for a pastor, for leaders, for a church through whom he can trust a work of revival. And the conditions in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen are not so much the way to get revival, but they are evidences that revival is already in the air. For look at it. When we humble ourselves, when we pray, when we are seeking Him, we are in fact walking in a revival atmosphere at that moment. Even though externally things may not change, but when there's a humility, when there's a praying, a seeking, and a turning, we are in fact in the atmosphere and in the arena where God has the ability to work in our hearts and in our lives. It begins with the Holy Spirit stirring the core so He can stir the church and then He can stir the lost. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way, we cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. I believe that the time is now. I believe that the time is now to forsake fleshly efforts and human methods and great ideas, and let's get back to God's idea for how this works. I believe it's time for us to confess our pride and our prayerlessness. I believe it is time for us to destroy our idols of manipulation and cunning and trying to be cute and sexy so the world will be impressed with the church. The world is never impressed with a church that looks like the world. The world is only attracted to a church that offers something that world does not have, peace and power with God. We must forsake the things that stand in our way. Manly Beasley used to say that a glimpse of Jesus will save you, but to gaze at him will sanctify you. Here's what I know. We are committing moral suicide by pornography on our computers and by weakness in our courts. We are pol committing political suicide when we don't have the courage to stand for our convictions. I am weighing my words for praying over the Congress on August the 1st. I have 150 words. 
I cannot be sectarian. I cannot be political. I've got all my outlines for what I can't do. But one thing I can do, and I've not been forbidden from doing, and that is to cry out to the name of Jesus to save us from ourselves. When I look at this room today, could it be that today would be the day that a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, that we would say, today is the day that God showed up. That God revealed Himself in power. There was a day like that in the life of Isaiah. I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. It's about 739 B.C. And Isaiah is a prophet. He's a man of God. He is a man of conviction. He's a man of ethics. He's a man of high moral standards. He's a representative of God. But he hits a day in his life when everything changes from that day forward. Here's a man whose perspective, whose passions, and whose prayers began to change when he walked in to the presence of God. I wonder, could our passions, could our prayers, could our perspectives change today if we get into the presence of God. And while I say, and many of us say, I desire that at the same time, we leave a service when God is almost at the door and he's on the edges and he's on the fringes and we're just about to touch the hem of his garment and see power come out. And then we walk out and the first thing out of our mouth is, where are you going to eat today? And God slips away because our conversations are so trivial once we get outside the walls of this room and we quickly forget. I do it, you do it, we all do it. And we wonder why God doesn't linger with us longer. It's because we choose not to linger with Him longer. We need God in a new and fresh way. We just sang a few moments ago, I want to know you. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. Let me ask you a question. Now, really, really, this just us. Do you really want to see his face? Because when Isaiah saw his face, he was broken by his sin. You see, if I want to see the face of God then I'm going to see what my sin looks like to God. It's a lot easier to sing the song than it is to get yourself in the position to go into the presence of God and see His face. Because the first thing Isaiah did when he saw His face, he didn't lift his hands and say, oh, I just praise God. I'm in the presence of God. I've got goosebumps on top of my goosebumps. I feel great. I feel good. This is great. This is the coolest worship service I've ever been in in my life. First thing he said was, woe is me. And folks, if we got honest today, if God showed up, and we got honest today. We wouldn't be trying to figure out if we could jump a pew. We'd try to figure out how deep into the carpet we could get our noses because of the shame we would see in our sin. Before we leave today, I, my prayer is that God would do something that would mark us until our last breath. Here's a moment of crisis a moment of confession, a moment of humility with Isaiah. 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah saw Jesus. 
chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah realized that the first problem was not the nation. The first problem was himself. You see, the first problem that I need to recognize is not the problem of people in this church who are members and never come. It's not the problem of people in this church that make wrong choices. The first problem I have to recognize for revival is the first problem is me. If I'm not walking in obedience with God, if I'm not walking in fellowship with God, if I'm not walking in unbroken communion with God, then I'm the biggest problem. Have you gotten there? Where you realize that it's not the person that's sitting behind you or the person that doesn't participate in Sunday school like they ought to or the the person in your family that's not walking with God or the person that dropped out and doesn't come to church anymore. Have you gotten to the point where Isaiah got where he knew that until God got his attention, God was not going to get the attention of anybody else? This is where Isaiah finds himself. And so first of all, we see contemplation in verses 1 and 5. And I want you to look at verse 1, four words, and in verse 5, three words. Verse 1, I saw the Lord, and draw a line down to verse 5. Woe is me. I saw the Lord, and woe is me. The starting point of contemplation is the self-revelation of God. God had revealed himself to Isaiah, and it happened in a worship experience. This same thing had happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. This happened suddenly and it overwhelmed him. And like Isaiah, our one cry should be that we would be humble enough to see God as he is and to see ourselves in need of a great touch from heaven. There are five things that Isaiah saw. First of all, he saw the pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory. Now think about that. Jesus revealed himself several times in the Old Testament before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. But he saw Christ, the Lord, appeared before him high and lifted up. And he was overwhelmed by him. He was overwhelmed by his presence. John 12, 41 says, These things Isaiah saw because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. In other words, from chapter 6 and verse 1 all the way through the rest of Isaiah, everything Isaiah said about judgment and about righteousness, about the birth of the virgin-born Son of God, about the death that he would die in Isaiah 52 and 53, he got that when he saw the glory of God. The glory of God will change your message. 
The glory of God will change your perspective. The glory of God will let you tell the truth when others don't want to hear it. The glory of God will reveal himself to those who are ready to receive it. Secondly, he saw Jesus reigning. Jesus reigning, sitting on the throne. Jesus was not scurrying about, wondering about which bad king would rise to the throne after this next king dies or who was in charge or who thought they were in charge. He saw Jesus sitting on the throne. The throne of Uzziah was empty, but the throne of heaven was occupied. In glory, there is an established throne that no tyrant, no dictator, no elected official can overthrow. Thirdly, he saw the Lord being worshipped. The angels and the seraphim were there. He saw true worship, undefiled worship, eternal worship taking place in the presence of God. Fourthly, he saw the Lord in his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Now listen, he is so holy, even the angels had to cover their faces. The seraphim covered their faces with the wings. He is a holy other from us. We look at somebody and we say, there goes a holy person, there goes a righteous person, but there's a holiness of God unlike anything we will know until we see him face to face. He saw him in his holiness, and then he saw the Lord in his power and majesty. He calls him the Lord of hosts. You can also translate that phrase, the Lord of hosts, the God of battles. Here's what Isaiah learned. When God is in the battle, he wins. If you try to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil without seeing a holy God and worshiping a holy God and worshiping a reigning Lord, you will lose. But John said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The reason the church is defeated today is because we haven't read our Bibles, and if we have, we don't believe them. He says that greater is he in you right now, in you, you alone, by yourself, than he that is in the world. And yet, I'm talking to people that are living defeated lives because you don't really believe that applies to you. I will tell you, when you see God reigning, when you worship God, when you see him in his holiness, when you see him in his power and majesty, no battle will frighten you. You'll be ready for the battles that the devil throws your way. There's conviction, verse 5, then, that word, when, then, when he saw the Lord, then he came under deep conviction, and there was conviction and confession. He saw God as he is, and he obeyed his word. Now, when's the last time, let me ask you, when's the last time you were convicted? I'm not talking about a crime. I'm not talking about getting pulled over for speeding. I'm talking about when's the last time you were spiritually convicted? Say, well, I get convicted every week. Do you change? You see, convicted means I have been tried and found guilty as charged. And I throw myself on the mercy of the court for mercy instead of judgment. 
Convicted means I don't care if anybody knows I've been convicted. I don't care if anybody knows I'm the only one at the altar. I don't care if anybody knows what I've done. I'm convicted that I need to be right with God and nothing's going to keep that from happening. That's conviction. So I want to ask you a question. When's the last time you were convicted? When's the last time you were broken? You realize that you were a child of God who was disobedient to God in your behavior, in your actions, in your choices. Job 40 and verse 4 says, I'm speechless in awe. Words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. David said in Psalm 22, 6, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Simon Peter said, depart from me, Lord, I am wretched man. John saw the Lord on the Isle of Patmos and fell at his feet as dead. Isaiah said, woe is me. And yet Isaiah also wrote in 59 and verse 1, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But here's what he says. But you're, now remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to God's people, to Israel, but it also applies to us. He's not talking to pagans. Here's what he says. God's hand's not short to save. God's ear's not dull to hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. That's what he's saying about the church. He said, you want to know why God seems far away? It's because everything about your life is lacking the convicting power of God on it. You built a wall. There's resistance There's a lack of brokenness. So there's conviction, then there's confession. Verse 5, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. The only way to deal with sin is to confess it. Public sin, public confession, sin against a man, confess it to the man and to God. Sin against the church, you confess it to the church. Sin against God must be confessed. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will have compassion. God is working on us to get get us to deal with unconfessed and unforsaken sin. Now here's Isaiah's problem. Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah's problem were his lips. Just be honest. It's just you thinking right now. What's your problem? What's the thing you need to confess? What's the area that you thought before you walked in today you could cover up, hide, pretend, play, gloss over, and God's Holy Spirit is pressing down on you right now and saying, you know what it is. You see, I don't have to name it. The Holy Spirit convicts. Now, Satan will accuse in general. You're sorry, you're worthless, blah, blah, blah. That's Satan accusing. Listen, the the devil will accuse in general. God gets very specific. It's your lips, it's your hands, it's your feet, it's your tongue, it's your mind, it's your thought life. God gets very specific about what your sin is. Isaiah said, and we all know, I'm a man of unclean lips. What's the Spirit of God pressing in on you about today? What's He tightening the screws on? Where is He boxing you in so that He can get your attention? 
Because with confession comes cleansing and consecration. Verses 6 and 7, we see the cleansing. God touched his lips and took away his iniquity and purged his sin. The Holy Spirit is the one that cleanses us from all sin. Now here's what I love. After he's confessed, he's, he's, he's contemplated, he's confessed, he's convicted, he's cleansed, and now he's ready to be consecrated. Here I am, Lord. Send me. We sing a song sometimes, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. Can I just tell you something? God doesn't use dirty vessels. God only uses clean vessels. The, the utensils that were used in the sacrificial system and in the temple had to be cleansed, set apart for God. And after he was cleansed, there was a consecration moment and two things happened. First of all, he dedicated himself to the Lord. He dedicated himself to the Lord. Now that's got to come first. To dedicate yourself to the Lord. Not dedicate your wife or your husband or your kids. You can do that, but it has to be personal. He dedicated himself to the Lord, and then he dedicated himself to the Lord's service. He dedicated himself to the Lord's service. Now, all this is, is this is a lordship decision. This is a decision for us to come under the lordship of Christ. And until we have been convicted and we've confessed, we cannot be consecrated to be used for service the way God wants to use us. A lordship decision. Now, guess what? God's not running for office. You can't kick him out. You can't vote him out. You may not like his decisions. Tough. He's large and in charge. And you're not going to change his mind. You're not going to alter his ways. He's Lord. So if he's Lord, then I am his servant. But before I can ever be his servant, I have to have him as my Savior. And the word Lord is used 431 times in the Scriptures. Savior is used 24 times. You see, if he's not Lord, you have every reason to guess and hope and roll the dice that you're going to get to heaven because you have no assurance of salvation if he's not Lord. Why? Because if he's not boss, you're still the boss of your life. So since you're the boss, you figure out how you're going to die and get to heaven. You figure out how you're going to fix your problems. You figure out how you're going to manage your money. You figure out how you're going to make your house payment. You figure out how to get your rebellious kids back in line. You figure out how to make your marriage work. Since you're boss, figure it all out. But if he's Lord, then you can go to him and say, Lord, I am your humble servant. I've come before you cleansed and confessed. Do you know what your children are doing that live under my roof? Do you know my financial situation? Do you know my problems? Do you know my issues? Do you know my burdens? Yes, he does. And he's Lord of them. He may be taking you through them because you need to learn to trust him and quit trying to control it yourself. Now, here's what's important. 
I love the fact that we are doing more in missions than we've ever done. I love the fact that our students are going to Gillespie and working in an apartment complex right down the street every week to do ministry and missions. But can I tell you something, folks? You can go to the uttermost parts of the earth and do missions and still not have him as Lord. And think that by going and serving, you can hedge your bets when you're home. It is not about, I'm going to go to do missions. It's about, Lord, you're in charge. What do you want me to do? Well, I want you to do missions. Or I want you to love your wife. Or I want you to, to not provoke your kids to anger. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. It's those things that God is trying to do. God is trying to get us into a position where he can use us effectively. And the only way he can do that is when he's Lord. You see, as long as I'm boss... He's not Lord. As long as I've got a corner of my life where I said, I got everything but this, he's not Lord. You see, if, if I'm not faithful to him, then I am in fact unfaithful to him. It's a lordship decision. Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Wherever... Whenever, whatever, here am I, send me. Do God's will where you are. Verse 9, go and tell this people. Go out from this place and tell this people. In May 1801, a frontier pastor, Barton Stone, called for a four-day meeting at the Cane Ridge Meeting House. It was in the Cane Breaks in Bourbon County, Kentucky. Many farmers laid down their plows and went to the meeting, and God began to move in those four days in May of 1801. Pastor Stone called for another four-day meeting in August. So many people responded to this meeting that the U.S. Army was called out to help with the crowds. The United States Army estimated that in August of 1801, in Barton County, Kentucky, outside a church that would seat 200, not even as big as our chapel, that 20,000 people showed up to meet with God. That they had to help to maintain and make sure that brush fires wouldn't break out. It, it was the beginning of what we have called now for two centuries camp meetings. And it all began with one preacher in a little church Barton Stone in a church it wouldn't seat 200 calling people to come meet with God. Even revival historians are not sure where all the people came from because 20,000 people didn't live in a hundred mile radius of there. But the Spirit of God began to draw people to Bourbon County, Kentucky, not by the way for Jack Daniels, but for Jesus. And they were drawn into this church and it began this movement. God's hour had come and it came to Barton Stone, the pastor, and it came to the Cane Ridge Meeting House. It wasn't even big enough to be called a church. This is what one witness said. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. 
Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy, while others were shouting, my heart beat tumultuously, my knees trembled, my lips quivered, and I felt as though I must fall on the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass. Here's my prayer. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it in me. Lord, do it now. Lord, do it here. Lord, do it today. Let's stand and let's pray.